Amen. Thank you so much, Daniel. Thank you, worship team, for leading us. And good morning, everybody. All right, pretty good, pretty good response for the 9.30 on a spring break. I like it. Uh, if we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Blake Godsey. I serve as the family pastor here at uh, Solid Rock. And uh, before we get started, I just wanted to make you aware of a couple of things going on around the church uh, right now. First is uh, next week, we are having family worship. So family worship is when we only have our nursery and toddler classes uh, from pre-K on through the rest. Uh, with kids, with students, we don't have student services, we don't have kids services, we invite all the kids and students to join us here in uh, the worship uh, service all together. We do this about once a quarter, uh, and really our heart in that is to give the whole family an opportunity to worship together, sing together, to hear teaching together, to hear the reading of the word together, to pray together, and so we're looking forward to doing that next week. Wanted to make you aware of that. I also wanted to give you a little bit of an update um, for our uh, search for a student minister, okay, our student pastor. I just wanted to give you just a very high-level update that um, there's some things going on in that search that we're very excited about, and I know that's not a lot of information, but I want you to know mostly so that you can be praying. We want you to be encouraged too, but we want you to be praying that God's will would be clear, that we, that uh, others would be able to discern God's will in this for us. So I did just want to let you know that so you can be praying, and hopefully we'll have some more concrete updates for you in the coming weeks. Um, And then also I wanted to uh, just let us, kind of give us a broad overview of where we've been in 1 Peter up to this point. So we are back in 1 Peter today, and basically we've been talking about uh, these people that Peter calls exiles, And it kind of has a twofold meaning when he calls them exiles. One, they've kind of been dispersed because of persecution. So they are living in places that are not their original home. Because of their faith in Jesus, these Christians have been dispersed. But then there's also kind of this more eternal spiritual meaning to this idea of exiles that any of us who are in Christ, when we are in this life, we look forward to our home forever with Christ. And so this earth is not our ultimate home. So in a way, all who believe in Christ are exiles because we are not in our true home, the home that is destined for us. And so as I've been thinking about that and thinking about what it means to suffer, um, I don't know about you, but I watched a lot of uh, March Madness this week. And uh, if you filled out a bracket on a very micro, micro, micro level of suffering in comparison to what real suffering is, you probably experienced a little difficulty, and I know I did too. Okay, when I look at my bracket and I see all the little red X's next to the teams who lost, and they just add up, and they're more than the teams that won. In my best moments, even, even when maybe my team didn't win, I'm able to say, you know what, somebody's out there living their dream. This is, this is the moment they've waited for their entire life. You know what, I didn't pick their team, but good for them. And then there's the flip side where I'm frustrated by my bracket, and I yell at 19, 20, 21-year-olds on the TV and say, How could you have messed this up for me? Don't you know that I picked your team? Did you do this to me on purpose, right? And that's an example, really, of a, again, a micro, micro, micro example of what it looks to, you know, have have something not go your way and maybe deal with it in a healthy way by congratulating those. And then maybe that unhealthy way where you're a little more concerned with what people did or didn't do for you. And so what we're actually going to see today is in light of the call to suffer well, Peter is going to tell us what it means to answer the call to righteous living in the midst of suffering. That in the midst of suffering, we're not to turn to our old sinful passions, but instead we are to turn our eyes toward the example of Jesus 
to live righteously. So we are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning, uh, verses 1 through 11, and I'll start by reading verses 1 and 2. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So the beginning of this passage helps us understand that as a result of what Christ has done, we are called to do something as well. Specifically, this passage kind of brings us back to 1 Peter 3, verse 18, where it says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So with that in mind, that changes the way we live. We know that Christ suffered in his earthly life, and we know too, especially we've seen throughout this study in First Peter, that if we are in Christ, we're going to experience suffering as well. And this is suffering that will be often because we have chosen to follow Jesus. And so I just want to go ahead and let you know there's going to be a couple of phrases in this first four verses or so that we're going to kind of flesh out. So bear with me as we uh, explain some of these passages and or some of these phrases and what they mean. But the first one we see here is this term that he's using, in the flesh. Okay, so I want us to be clear on what it means when he says, in the flesh. If you're familiar with Paul's letters, he will sometimes use this word flesh to refer to kind of the sinful part of humanity, this uh, part of us that still exists even after we're in Christ that is drawing us toward our natural tendency towards sin. And he compares that to the ministry of the Spirit, which is leading us into Christ's likeness, leading us into obedience. Okay, so Paul often talks about it that way. Peter's actually using this term a little more literally here. So if we have that idea of what Paul said, I want us to go ahead and tuck that away for later and think Peter's actually kind of speaking literally saying in the flesh, meaning in this life, like in these fleshly bodies. This is what he's meaning by this idea of suffering in the flesh, that in this life we will have suffering. He makes this abundantly clear when he talks about how Christ suffered in the flesh, which of course Christ in the incarnation came to live fully God, fully man. He didn't have that sinful nature that we deal with, but he did suffer in the flesh, in the body that he had when he was fully man, fully God. So that is what we're talking about. When Peter is calling us to live righteously in the flesh, he's talking about in our lives here and now, here on earth. And he tells us that suffering righteously in our lives is a way we reject those natural sinful passions and instead choose to pursue God's will. Another little phrase that I want us to understand is this idea of whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So what he's saying is it's unfortunately not true that if we suffer once, then oh good, we don't have to deal with sin anymore. We're going to be totally free from that just as long as we suffer just that one time, right? But really what he's telling us is if we are actively suffering for doing what is good, then that's an indication that our lives are moving in the direction of choosing to pursue God's righteousness rather than our sinful passion. So the person that is suffering well, suffering for righteousness, suffering for Christ, is making the choice that, you know what, the natural way I would go is not the right way. I'm going to choose the way that God tells me that I should go. And remember, too, it's important that we think of this suffering that Peter talks about. He's not talking about a suffering that comes as a consequence of our sin, right? 
We don't get to suffer well if we're really unkind to others and then they seem a little bit distant to us, right? That doesn't count as us suffering well. That's us dealing with the consequences of our actions. What Peter is talking about is he's talking about this suffering that comes from following Christ, that maybe as a result of that, maybe it's just something that happens to us because sin exists in the world and things aren't as they should be. This kind of suffering that is a little bit out of our control that may be done to us because we have aligned ourselves with Christ. So to live righteously through suffering in this life, this is an indication that we're turning away from our natural passions, our natural desires, that humanity in us that seeks sin is not seeking God, and instead we are seeking to align ourselves with God's will. That's what suffering well is an indication of. That is what we are called to do, is to suffer righteously. So in this next section, Peter kind of explains what that sinful side that characterizes a life seeking human passions and consequences is. Let's pick it back up in verse 3. It says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit in the way God does. Okay, so Peter explains to us there's no benefit to be gained by living a licentious and excessive lifestyle. Okay, and I want to get, again, one more of these phrases. We've got two more of these phrases. We're going to get through this idea, this, the past that suffices, this time that is past suffices. He's basically saying all of human history that's gone back, that's plenty. Okay, we do not need to continue in these sinful passions. There's been enough of that. God has been patient with us. He has been merciful with us but he's calling us now to something better. We shouldn't continue in the sinfulness that once defined us. And Peter calls this what the Gentiles do. If you were someone like Peter who grew up in Judaism, you would often think of the rest of the world as Gentiles, whereas the people of Israel, the Jewish people, would have been God's covenant people. So they lived a certain way, and God's covenant people were called to live a different way. Now, of course, we know through all of biblical history, that that isn't quite how it stood up for the people of Israel. They often found themselves in the same situations that we see in this passage that Peter calls what the Gentiles do, right? And oftentimes it started with idolatry and progressed to these other forms of excessive licentious behavior. So we could really sum up this verse 3 of people living in excess apart from from God, whether that be sexually, with substances. The nature of the sin listed here is an attempt to find fulfillment in an excess of things outside of God's created order. And Peter says, the time for that is over. We are called to something greater. But people who are submitting to the will of God know that a life seeking fulfillment through worldly pleasures is worthless. If we are seeking God, if we know Christ, we are in Christ, we're able to look back on our lives before him and know that was going nowhere. I thought I was going somewhere and I realized it's a dead end at every street. We know that those things are worthless. But here's the thing. 
The people around you, the people in your circle, the people who have known you, they're not going to understand the same way if they're not in Christ. It's going to look different to them. They're going to be confused by that. I remember the first time that I was taken snipe hunting, if any of you are familiar with that. Um, first timers love snipe hunting. Second timers do not like it quite as much. But you know, generally, it's this idea, how much more fun could we have than going out in the woods at night, catching these creatures that I've never heard of? I just hold a bag open and, oh, if I'm really quiet and still, they'll just run on in there. Maybe someone's nice gives you a flashlight. And didn't it always just work out that right when you turn the flashlight that somebody would be like, oh, you, you just missed one. It was right over there, right? So when you're eight years old, and a bunch of people are going to do this, and you see some people chuckling, and they're like, no, I, I think I'm good. I'm not going to go. You're like, why? Why, are you, why don't you want to do this? This sounds so fun. We're going to get to hold a bag open. Didn't you hear? It's going to be dark. But you realize, of course, after your first time snipe hunting that you were being tricked. So the people, the people in it, we, I didn't understand. Why, didn't, why doesn't everybody want to go? But it's because some of the people knew what the end of that story was, how the end of a snipe hunt goes, which goes with a lot of disappointment, people ragging on you, right? But in life, this is, this is a really real thing that we deal with. If you have people who knew you before you were following the Lord, or if you are uh, with people who are kind of watching you as you start to follow the Lord, they are not going to understand. And in many instances, they are going to think less of you. Why don't you have fun anymore? We used to have so much fun. Why are you so boring now? Why, why are you spending so much of your time at, at church? Why are you choosing those things? They won't understand. These could be responses that you'd get as you change a lifestyle, as you pursue a lifestyle in which you're trying to live righteously. And this reaction from others can hurt. It can make it feel like, is this worth it? That's an example of the suffering Peter's talking about. This idea that someone would say, man, you're not the same. You're not the same as you were since you met Jesus, and I don't like it. That's this idea that Peter's talking about, that people will slander us for that. But Peter also gives us this sobering reminder that everyone will be called to give an account of our actions to God when our time in this life is over. Peter actually explained this to a group of Gentiles himself in Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 42, going through verse 43. He said, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Of course, the he he's talking about there is Jesus. And then we also see the author of Hebrews touches on this in chapter nine. It says, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And what we see here in, in many other places in Scripture is that there will be a judgment for all people. And that's bad news. The bad news of that is that none of our actions can stand up to the righteous judgment of a holy God. None of our actions can come anywhere close to the judgment of a holy God. 
But the second part of these passages echo what Peter is saying here again. We'll read verse 6 one more time. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The passages in Acts and Hebrews and here in 1 Peter remind us the same truth. There is good news for those who are in Christ on that day. The bad news is our actions are never going to be good enough The good news is Jesus' actions were good enough. That in that day of judgment, through faith in him, that we can stand with confidence before the judgment of a holy God because of who Jesus is. Through his work on the cross and his resurrection, on that day we're promised that we'll be forgiven. That those things that we did wrong that he has taken care of, all the sin, the great debt that we have accumulated against God, taken care of on the cross. That's the promise of Christ. If we believe in him for the forgiveness of our sins, we have no need to fear on the day that is coming of judgment. That's the way that we can enter boldly, even to a holy God to say, it's because of Jesus that I can stand in confidence in this day of judgment. And, and Peter wants the people to see that hope. That even though there are people who believed the God and died in this life, that they spent their lives being slandered, maligned, that they were suffering in this life because of the actions of other people, he wants to give them this hope. In the end, it's worth it. It's not over just because they didn't make it through this life. The fact that they suffered righteously is a feather in their cap that they did what they were supposed to be doing. So to sum up, verses 1 through 6 are telling us it's good to suffer righteously, to cast aside our former way of living, because though we may experience the difficulty in this life, we are secure because of Jesus in eternity. That's what he wants to remind the people of, that even if it's not working out for you in this life, the way you're living isn't attracting people. Maybe it's making people feel distant from you. They don't understand you. It's worth it because we're secure with Christ. And Peter is then going to give us some practical ways that we can live righteously here in this next section. Picking it back up in 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He starts this section by again putting this eternal perspective before us as we think about how to live righteously in the midst of suffering. He says this kind of shocking phrase, he says the end of all things is at hand. And essentially what he's saying here is Jesus at this point when he's writing, Jesus had died, been resurrected, had ascended to heaven. We're in this last age that we call the church age the next big thing to happen is that Jesus is going to come back because that's what he promised. So he's, these are kind of the last of days. And you know, it's very likely that Peter may have thought that Jesus would come back in his lifetime. 
Peter's in good company. Christians for all times have hoped and believed that maybe this is the time when Jesus will finally return and make things right. But it's actually pretty neat to see in Peter's second epistle, in chapter 3 of 2 Peter, we see a little bit of his perspective on this as well. He says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And Peter was talking to a group of people that were, had people coming at them like, so when's this Jesus going to return, huh? They were doubting that Jesus was going to return because more time than they expected had passed. And this is what Peter gives them. He said, it's not because God is in some sort of delay. The reason that he is patient or that it seems like things are going slowly is he desires for all to come to repentance. The delay is really just an expression of God's patient mercy for us. This idea that he wants all to come to repentance. So in these last days, that's what Peter's going to call it earlier in the book, is these last days, this time that we find ourselves in now, we are supposed to live with an urgency to live righteously, knowing that Jesus is going to return. And so in light of that fact, we're going to get four commands that lead to one purpose, four commands that lead to one purpose of some practical ways that we live righteously especially in the midst of suffering, especially when those around us don't understand why we're living the way we live, especially when they slander us. This is what we're called to do to live righteously. The first thing he's going to say is be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. In contrast to the excessiveness of verse 3 in human passions, he calls us to have self-control and also clear minds. And he's not calling us to a self-control that allows us to say, I'm so much better than everybody else. Look how self-controlled I am. Look how excessive everybody else is. I'm self-controlled. No, he says that self-control, that clear-headedness, is meant to lead us to pray. That self-control and that clear-headedness, that sober-mindedness, is meant to lead us to pray. When we recognize who we are, and we recognize who God is in relation to us, that should lead us to pray, to submit ourselves constantly before him, especially if we're thinking about how we're suffering, right? Instead of trying to fix things ourselves, we're called to live righteously by submitting these things before God. Second thing he's going to say is, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Another way you might put that is in steadfast pursuit we love each other earnestly. Peter tells us this is our focus as people who are in Christ. This is what we are supposed to be known by. In fact, Jesus is going to say this to Peter and the other disciples, and he's going to say it's the true mark of a disciple, is that you have love for one another. If we can't manage to love one another united in Christ as we are, how are we supposed to love a world that is hostile to Christ? We have the most important thing in common if we are in Christ, that we are God's children, that we are redeemed. If we can't love one another in the midst of that, how can we expect to love someone who's hostile to that idea? Some of you may know that when I was in seminary, uh, I worked uh, as a barista, 
And uh, after I was there for several months, they had me start training other baristas, I think because nobody else wanted to do it, and I thought it sounded pretty fun. So uh, I was training people, and I would always kind of start them off with a little bit of a trick question. I would say, what is your number one goal here as you work? And they generally would say some variation of, oh, to serve the customer, do a good job in that. And I would tell them, no. Your number one job is to be a member of this team. Our team's job is to serve the customer well. But if you don't have the back of the person standing next to you, we've got to work in tandem. We've got to work together. If we're just a bunch of individuals out here, we're not going to make it. We're not going to make it through one shift, let alone make it to the next day the next day. We needed to be a part of a team to accomplish that goal. And I think when we think about that being true of us in the church, it sounds really good. And we recognize the truth of it, but man, it's hard. It's hard to live it out, right? The ones that we're closest to are pretty much always the ones that are going to bug us the most, the ones that we're going to need to, we are going to need to forgive the most, the ones from whom we're going to need the most forgiveness, right? That's the nature of being close with someone. It can be so tempting to think, oh, it's church. It should be a lot easier than this, right? Isn't everybody supposed to be nice at church? Aren't we all supposed to get along? We're definitely supposed to all get along, that doesn't mean it's easy. That's not a promise that God makes us on this side of eternity, that it will be easy for us to get along with one another. But that's what we're called to. And when we're earnestly loving one another, it covers a multitude of sins. When we're choosing earnest love for one another, those things that bug me, those things that you need to, I need to forgive you for, the things you need to forgive me for, they seem a little bit smaller when we're choosing to earnestly love one another, when we have that as our mindset. The third thing Peter is going to say here is to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Don't forget the without grumbling, right? So think about this. Remember, these people are exiles. They've been scattered. They have been persecuted. Many of the people that are a part of this church or these churches that would have been hearing this may have been ostracized from their communities, If they had come out of paganism, they could easily have been ostracized from their community for choosing to follow Christ. If they came out of Judaism, they could have easily been ostracized because some people saw being a Christian as a betrayal of the Jewish faith rather than a fulfillment of the Jewish faith. These people would have been, in many cases, lonely. Very lonely in this new life with Christ, knowing that it's right, but also feeling unsupported. For people to show hospitality to one another for the sake of Christ, is huge. For the church to be this place, making a place for one another, that shows the welcoming nature of Christ. If you're welcome in my home, what does that say about the God that I serve? If I make use of my resources to take care of you, what does that say about the God that I serve? And if you're tempted to think, maybe you're a hospitable person and you've always thought, man, this is just kind of a lame thing. I guess I'm hospitable, whatever. Don't think that. Don't think that at all. We see it here. Oftentimes, hospitality is listed as a a specific spiritual gift that we see in Scripture, and it's also one of the qualifications for being an elder. This is a quality that is very important in the eyes of God, that we show hospitality to one another. We're called to do it, too, with a good attitude. It's not being hospitable if we do it begrudgingly, if we do it with a bad attitude, or with this expectation of return, right? Right? Well, I'm going to take care of you this time, but you're going to make it even the next time, right? 
That's not the kind of hospitality we're talking about. We're talking about this generosity of spirit to share my resources, share my spaces with another person. And the fourth thing that Peter's going to talk about, he says, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Peter reminds us that God gifts each of us uniquely, but we are all given the same call to use that gift to serve one another in the body of Christ. Different gifts, same purpose. We are called to use those gifts to serve one another. So if somebody's speaking, whether that be preaching, sharing the gospel, counseling, correcting, we're supposed to do that with God's words, not our own words. He says, if you're going to speak, do it as if, as if they're the oracles of God, that we rely on God's words, not our own human wisdom, as we are using our gifts of speaking. And if we're serving, whether that be here at church, and be on a school board, a nonprofit, a food pantry, that service is supplied by God's strength. It is for him, it is for the betterment of the body. It's not something that we're meant to give ourselves a gold star for, that we did something awesome. It's meant to serve others. That's why we have these gifts that he's given. God's goodness gifts us to serve. When we have that perspective, it changes the way we think about our giftings. And here is the purpose. Here's the underlying purpose for why we live this way, why we choose this, the second half of 1 Peter 4, verse 11. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's all for him. It's all for his glory. Abstaining from human passions, choosing to live righteously, even in the midst of suffering and persecution and slander, that brings glory to God. That helps people see who God is. To glorify God essentially means to make him known for who he is. We don't need to dress him up or make him seem awesome. He is awesome. We just need to let people know. And one way that we do that is how we live. We show the character of God, the greatness of God, the faithfulness of God when we choose to do things his way instead of our own way. If we're willing to suffer and to suffer righteously, sometimes to suffer for doing good, like we talked about last week, what does that say about the God we serve? It tells people that he's worth it. Our actions can tell others he's worth it. I want to make him known by my actions because he's worth it. That's who he is. The Westminster Catechism says that the chief end or the true goal of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. We're not worthy of this kind of glory. We find ourselves seeking this kind of glory. We're not worthy of it. But in Christ, God calls us worthy of something truly wonderful. It's to belong to him and to enjoy him forever. That's what we're called to. So as we finish up here this morning, I just want to give us a couple of questions to uh, reflect on um, as we think about what it means to live righteously in the midst of suffering. First, what areas of your life have changed as you've grown in Christ? As I talked about that 
what came up for you? What are some things you know about your life before that maybe you still deal with a little bit of guilt or shame about that you remember from your old life? How do people respond to your change? And how does that even compound some of those feelings of guilt and shame? We can let go of those feelings of guilt and shame in Christ. Who we were before has been totally transformed by the work of Christ. We don't have to feel the guilt and shame. Second, how is the reality of God's judgment both sobering and hopeful in the midst of suffering? How does this change the way that we suffer? How does this idea that there's a judgment that our actions could never hold up to, how does that change the way we live? How does it change our perspective? Third, what areas of your life is God especially calling you to love and serve? God's calling us all to love and serve. Who is God calling you to love especially right now? How is God calling you to serve, especially right now? How can those things reflect who God is? How can those bring him glory? And that goes into the last one. How does the call to glorify God change the way we view suffering? If we think that the way we live in the midst of suffering is going to reflect positively on God or negatively on God, how does that change the way we view those opportunities? All of us know, if we've lived any life, that we are going to have suffering in this life. It is inevitable. It is part of the human condition. It is part of sin in this world. If we are in Christ, not only do we have this opportunity to stand on judgment day and know that we are secure in Christ, we also have that ability through the Holy Spirit to put aside the passions of our former life, this excessive lifestyle where we sought meaning in anything and everything. We can find our meaning in who God is, and we have the opportunity to enjoy him forever. Let's pray. God, we believe that you are worth it. We give you the glory that you are deserving of. God, that you would give us an opportunity to show who you are through our actions. We recognize that we falter in that. We ask your forgiveness for how we falter. Strengthen us. Lord, we, we all know that even when we're in Christ, the idea that we should live like we formerly did is still a, a temptation that we deal with. We know that it's something that still exists in our lives. God, help us to turn away from those. Through your Holy Spirit, guide us into righteous living. Help us to suffer well. Help us to live well. Help us to love one another. Help us to show who you are through the way we act toward one another. God, we know we're not alone in this. We know that you are the one who is empowering us, who is growing us. We're the ones that you call your own. God, we're so grateful for that fact. Help us, Lord, to see those areas of our lives in which we need to live righteously even in the midst of suffering. God, we pray that you would be glorified in all of it.